Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. A lot of show to cover here and uh, much, much indeed to discuss, my friends. Um, I want to lead off with uh, National Security Day. Uh, but let me just note that there is, I, I, I think you could make the case that in the media war that's going on right now, uh, we have seen aspects of the other side. We have seen the opposition expose itself in ways that I did not think would have even been likely, not impossible, but likely a few weeks ago. And yet here we are. Now you have a... Uh, possible uh, blackmail doxing threat, right? Doxing being when you uh, put someone's information all over the Internet, you expose someone on the Internet uh, to get them in trouble, to mess them up because of what someone did by creating a GIF, a video, which Donald Trump retweeted. And at last count, when I saw it, it had been retweeted 235,000 times. So it has certainly gotten a whole lot of attention, and it is, uh, I think, a story that we will have to get into a bit at some length because you have CNN saying that this individual uh, could be, uh, this individual uh, might be exposed publicly if he steps out of line and bothers CNN again. That is quite a that is quite a policy. Uh, I'll give you the details of all of that. Uh, but I, I know that there's so much to cover, and I, I have much more show today than we'll have time to get into. Uh, on the, I, I want to get into the national security side of things here first, if I can, if I may. And uh, I wanted to say uh, a few words about what's going on here in North Korea. No doubt you have heard some some uh, of the details uh, or seen some of the headlines. But here's what we know. North Korea uh, has launched yet another missile, and North Korea is doing things that are provoking not just a response from the United States and South Korea, but there are now concerns, international concerns, about just where all of this is going to go. You've got Trump at the G20 tomorrow and uh, and Friday, so uh, certainly this will be coming up, I assume, in discussions between world leaders, right? G20 is a meeting of the 20 most powerful countries in the world. It's quite a, quite a gathering. Um, but Trump will be discussing um, with all of them a whole bunch of uh, different issues. Uh, North Korea, I think, higher on the agenda than anyone had anticipated because of this uh, missile, which I'll get into some details about that with you in just a few minutes coming up here with our friend 
uh, Gordon Chang joining. So we'll be talking to him about some of the details. But here's here's what we know from this. Here's the the problem. Um, and well, Nikki Haley said it pretty well, I think, uh, and she mentioned that North Korea, what we've been doing is not is not enough. We will not have patience for stalling or talking our way down to a watered-down resolution. Yesterday's ICBM escalation requires an escalated diplomatic and economic response. So, uh, this now is a situation where people are looking at this and thinking, how can we get uh, new, fresh thinking going here? How can we approach this in a way that We'll get a change in North Korean behavior because we've had years, if not decades, of failed policies. And over the course of those policies, um, we have only seen North Korea get further along in its efforts to have advanced missile technology and to further its nuclear program. And we have major newspapers today writing about how the U.S. is U.S. officials are saying the military option is on the table, that there's a, a real uh, a real possibility in the future at some specified point, unspecified point, that there could be a military exchange, perhaps with North Korea and U.S. forces or with some of our allies. This is a deeply concerning situation. And you had a retired U.S. Navy Admiral Stavridis uh, bringing up how serious this military exchange, even with uh, with unforeseeable consequences, no one really know. I'm just saying this is the the level of uh, casualties that we could be facing here is enormous, is catastrophic. Even uh, Stavridis said hundreds of thousands of casualties would be possible, including, of course, you've got U.S. you've got tens of thousands of of Americans, U.S. military who are in harm's way in South Korea. So as we go forward and, and look at what the options are here, military option is frightening, but so is the possibility of North Korea actually getting a nuclear capacity that would allow it to hit the United States. That's the big, that's the big uh, fear. And you have a, an Obama administration before the Trump administration that had eight years of what you would charitably call, I suppose, strategic patience with North Korea. The po- but the policies have been largely the same. Sa- crippling sanctions on North Korea, pursue those sanctions on North Korea and do everything that you can uh, to bring about a change in the leadership. But the leadership in North Korea is pretty crazy, as you know. I mean, it's there's a rational aspect to it and there's an insane aspect to it. It depends on uh, what specific issue we're looking at and how we're talking about it. But the North Korean uh, Kim regime views nukes as a necessary deterrent and as therefore needed for its survival. So the nuclear program for North Korea is not going anywhere anytime soon. It's it's essential. They Without that, they feel like it's only a matter of time. It probably wouldn't be very long at all before the international community stepped in and, and really did something other than just sanctions and economic and other things like that. So uh, that is, I have to say, that is where... Uh, this is all heading now, a discussion 
about what it looks like in a year, in two years, if we don't do more. But what if that's not enough? Uh, I don't hear a lot of good thinking. I don't hear a lot of new thinking, I should say. There's a lot of astute analysis out there, but I don't hear a lot of new thinking about how to tackle the problem of North Korea. Trump administration's been trying to put leverage on China. Uh, Trump administration has been, um, in its own way, I think, trying to push the Chinese leadership to do more about North Korea, and and it has not yet worked. And again, apologies for the Joe Scarborough, uh, Andrea Mitchell exchange. That was not what I meant to play for you. Um, But People are now pointing and saying, well, the Trump administration hasn't had results yet. They've been in office for, what, six, seven months? I mean, come on. You've got to give more time for a problem that has, quite honestly, exceeded the capacity of all previous administrations to adequately handle. And once you start to have the threat against the U.S. homeland include a maniac regime with nuclear missiles— uh, th- this becomes an issue that I-, I think should clarify all. We should clarify all of the uh, nonsense that's out there right now about oh, you know, does does U.S. Pol- does partisanship uh, partisanship stop at the country's borders? And when it comes to foreign policy, we can all be unified. Uh, I would like to think that there is a bipartisan urgency in dealing with this problem. And I, I, I do believe in large part there is at this point because the problem is getting so serious. It's a humanitarian crisis. It's a national security crisis. It could, depending on how things play out with China, become an economic crisis. And from history, we can see that administrations tend to be tested uh, by problems that come out of, the, you know, the problems that they weren't thinking were going to be the main ones, right? The, the, whether the Bush administration with 9-11 and then at the end, of course, the economic, uh, the economic implosion and then with the Obama administration, the Syrian civil war that I think the Obama administration largely deferred, delayed and, and ignored, at least for a time. And here we find ourselves with the Trump administration, I think, realizing that North Korea may be its greatest national security challenge. Forget about uh, Russian hacking of a private email account, uh, alleged or otherwise. Forget about that for a second. North Korea is the kind of problem that keeps people up at night who do nothing but look at the real threats against this country. North Korea and nuclear missiles and possible proliferation of missiles and nuclear technology to other rogue states. Remember, there are two out of three countries in the axis of evil are still not just in business and up and running, but in fact in stronger positions than they were when Bush first turned them the axis of evil many years ago. Iran and North Korea. And we'll be hearing a bit more about their relationship, I'm sure, in time. So uh, this now, I think, is the biggest foreign policy challenge that faces the Trump administration. I think Donald Trump does understand that this has to be uh, dealt with and that time is not on our side. And this problem is likely to only get worse. And I know they have top military minds looking at it. I know they have any number of uh, people along the along the lines of a, a General Mattis of that stature and uh, that capacity trying to find the best means of of handling North Korea. But for right now, uh, we do not have any good options, and the clock is ticking, and this is heading, it would seem to me, and to many others watching it, 
Uh, this is going to end in a very ugly fashion. Not sure what that means or when it will be, um, but the, the North Korean regime will certainly not, it, it will not go quietly, whether from internal or external forces. And the capacity for violence on a massive, catastrophic scale here is all too real. So that was uh, something that came up over the course. Unfortunately, I know it was Independence Day weekend for all of us, and it was a holiday, and many people were uh, trying to think about other things. But the uh, North Koreans firing off a missile and then making a lot of noise about how they can hit any number of targets, including U.S. targets and our close allies in the uh, region, the East Pacific, or the, uh, the Pacific and uh, in the Far East, uh, that's... That's a place where I think we're going to have to focus more energy going forward here um, and more analysis as well. Uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Team, we'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. We also have calls out there for um, a new strategy, a new strategy for Afghanistan as well. And... Uh, we I just saw the news reports from earlier today. We uh, lost a U.S. soldier uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, we are continuing to take casualties and is looking more closely at this issue as well. Because what do we really think a few thousand, a few thousand more troops in Afghanistan will uh, accomplish? Uh, what is the hope? We have been at war in this country for 16 years. Uh, we are now looking at, at a, a generation that is fighting in Afghanistan. Uh, this has been going on already for, I think, what by by anybody's estimate at the beginning would have been far too long. And, and I do not see, nor am I hearing, anything particularly different about the direction of U.S. strategy in, in Afghanistan and with our many allies there than asked. So far, we're hearing there'll be a few thousand, three or four thousand, something along those lines, additional troops that are deployed to Afghanistan. Um, that is going to perhaps stop the Taliban from moving beyond the one third of Afghanistan that they reportedly already control. But I, I, well, I know much of the country is in the midst of. Uh, figuring out which side of the Trump CNN or Trump uh, Morning Joe feud it's on, uh, there should be, I think, much more of a focus on this issue uh, because we we do need to have a national conversation about what the future of U.S. policy in Afghanistan really looks like. Um, that this is some, supposed to be a uh, a better way forward or or different it's possible i'm not saying that the trump administration general mattis and and those around him are not capable of coming up with a a new approach a new framework that would have a better outcome than what we've seen so far but i don't uh i, I don't see how uh, things are going to change um, unless I'm missing something, unless I'm surprised by what comes out of this strategy review. I, I know you had some U.S. senators uh, looking into this as well, and you've got John McCain and others that are discussing the need to stop the momentum the Taliban currently has in taking parts of Afghanistan 
and taking more parts of Afghanistan away from the control of central government in Kabul. Uh, but remember, under the Obama administration, I understand that there was a surge in troops and also a declaration of a withdrawal, which was not the way that it should have been done. I, I get that. But we went to over 100,000 troops in theater. And you have Marines and U.S. Army and, and others who are fight who were fighting to take Helmand, give it to the Afghan people, give it to the Afghan government. They did. And now much of Helmand province is back in the hands of the Taliban, along with other places across the country. They've even been able to seize the city of Kunduz temporarily in the north of Afghanistan. It's not just even a problem along a major problem, the Taliban, along the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. And that really gets to the problem, by the way. As long as Pakistan is a sanctuary for the Taliban, for the Haqqani Network, for uh, groups with either ties to or that would like to have ties to al-Qaeda, it, it doesn't really matter what the Afghan government says its capabilities will be in a year because you could theoretically, and this would be a near miracle, I think you could argue it would be a miracle at this point, eradicate the Taliban from Afghanistan proper, but if it still was able to exist and to uh, recruit and to thrive in Pakistan, then it will always pose a threat. And it's just a matter of when it when it comes back and infiltrates back across the border, begins to seize villages, from villages to towns, to towns to uh, cities, and from cities to whole provinces. Although really, actually, the, the model for the Taliban is to seize most of the province except for the city and to slowly try to choke off the city. That's how they're doing it in Afghanistan right now. So I understand that there are a lot of other people who are focused on the feud between Trump and the media. And I'll get into it because I think that it is important for and I want to articulate those reasons. Um, But we not just uh, we we shouldn't just stare down the very real possibility of a nightmare North Korea situation. Uh, We also need to look at what the change will be that would justify sending more troops U.S. troops to Afghanistan at this point, instead of just saying that we've done what we can, and it is up the Afghan government, and we need to draw down. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. All right, everybody, North Korea, big in the news. Lots to discuss today on this. We are joined by our friend Gordon Chang. He is author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. You can go check out GordonChang.com for more of his writing. Gordon, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much, Buck. All right, Gordon, what, what, is the, what is the latest here? We have a missile test. This one is different, and this one is concerning. Why? Well, this certainly had longer range than any missile tested by North Korea. Uh, so, for instance, it looks like it had a range of 4,100 miles, even though it only went 600 miles downrange because it was fired high arc, and that went about 1,740 miles into the atmosphere. So they did a couple things. Uh, one of them was to test heat shielding. Heat shielding is significant because it is the last technological hurdle that the North Koreans have to overcome before they're able to position a nuke on an ICBM and land it in the U.S. It looks like that with this test and the one they had in the middle of the May, they probably have figured this out. And so we are at peril. And there are uh, there are reports, obviously, from North Korea saying that they could hit 
Alaska. In fact, I believe I saw the front page of the New York Post repeating this claim that Alaska could be in range. Well, Alaska, virtually all of Alaska is in range. This missile that they tested can reach um, at least the approaches to the Hawaiian Islands. And we also think that the North Koreans have at least three missiles that can already reach the lower 48 states, the Taipodong, um, the KN-08, and the KN-14. They haven't either been tested or tested at full range, but they're based on proven technologies, and they probably work. And we also have a suspicion that the North Koreans can put a nuke on their intermediate-range Nodong missile. So the North Koreans are getting very, very close to being able to incinerate a U.S. city. Uh, how, are we talking a couple of years at this point, Gordon, based on the assessments and the analysts that you know and read? I mean, w w how far off is this likely to be? A year, two years. Um, and just put this in context. Um, if you go back a couple months, people were saying three years, four years. So the timeline certainly has been accelerated. And indeed, if the North Koreans are getting even more help from the Chinese than I suspect, then, you know, they could have this within weeks. Um, the, you've got to remember that the missile that the North Koreans tested yesterday, the Wasong-14, the one we've been talking about, um, was carried to the launch site on a Chinese truck, on a Chinese transporter erector launcher. And that means that Beijing has been making North Korea a real threat to the American homeland. Why would China want to help North Korea, which even the Chinese government has to realize is uh, a loose cannon at best in terms of geopolitics and, and uh, the, the strategies that China is pursuing in the region, Gordon. Why would China want to help North Korea in this specific endeavor of uh, in increasing its nuclear and missile capabilities? Well, you know, you clearly are correct that in the long term, uh, North Korea nuked up is more of a danger to China than anybody else and indeed is undercuts Chinese interests. But in the short term, this really creates a dynamic that Beijing loves, because every time North Korea does something provocative, we send our secretary of state to Beijing to plead for China's cooperation and the, China's and the Chinese extract concessions from us. Also, whenever the North Koreans do something atrocious, well, we don't talk to China about human rights, um, cyber attacks, predatory trade practices, South China Sea, Taiwan, you name it. So, you know, Chinese leaders are looking at this and saying, hey, you know, this really works for us. Also, there's some other aspects to this, and that is that the two militaries, the Korean People's Army and the People's Liberation Army, have deep links. And regardless of what the civilians may think, um, we see a lot of cooperation from military to military. What are the proliferation risks, Gordon, going forward with, with North Korea based on its past and what you believe to be its future intentions, both re with regard to miss advanced missile technology and a nuclear weapons specifically? What do we have to worry about when it comes to North Korea sharing and with whom? Well, we can answer that in a one word, and that is Iran. Um, each year, Iran is thought to pay somewhere between 2 and $3 billion to the North Koreans for their various forms of cooperation. There's a September 2012 cooperation agreement between the Tehran and Pyongyang. And pursuant to that, I think that you have Iranian technicians in that uh, North Korean military base very close to the Chinese border. That's just a guess. But I think that that's what's going on. Anyway, Iranians have been on site for all five nuclear tests that North Korea has conducted. They've been on site for long-range missile tests as well. Uh, you know, you scrape the paint off of any Iranian missile, or most of them, and you'll find a North Korean one.
This is deeply concerning. We're speaking to Gordon Chang. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Also, GordonChang.com for more of his uh, analysis. Gordon, what does what does it look like if just theoretically, so everyone listening can gauge uh, how seriously China is taking this concern and also how much influence we're able to exert on China, what would it look like if China said, okay, America, we, we will do whatever we can here. We will take this to heart. We'll do everything possible. What would that mean for North Korea vis-a-vis the Chinese? It would mean that North Korea would no longer have the Kim regime. Um, China accounts for more than 90 percent of North Korea's external trade, provides more than 90 percent of North Korea's crude oil, much of it on concessionary terms, more than half of investments, at least a third, maybe as much as 45 percent of the foodstuffs for North Korea. China is its primary backer in international councils like the U.N., and China provides confidence to regime members that they're safe from the international community. You know, as they say, North Korea could neither bark nor bite were it not for the Chinese. And so this is a problem that China can solve in very short order, but only if it wants to. Now, how? That, of course, begs the question, how do we make China either want to or willing to based on our entreaties, pressure, whatever else we've got in store? Well, um, many administrations, including the current one, have used carrots. Um, Last week, we saw the Trump administration switch from carrots to sticks. And the answer to your question, Buck, is we impose such costs on China that it has no choice but to do what we want. Um, We have overwhelming leverage over the Chinese, just as the Chinese have overwhelming leverage over the North Koreans. Um, But like the Chinese, we don't use our leverage, and that's our fault. Um, But we certainly can get the Chinese to move in much better directions, and we don't have the political will to do that. What would, what get, would assume we would, Gordon, just so again everyone can gauge the administration's response and, and their uh, China and North Korea policy accurately, what would be the all-in this administration is forcing China to finally confront this issue of North Korea in the way that we want them to? What would that look like from the U.S. perspective? What would we have to do? Well, I think that we start taking Chinese banks, not just the small fry one that we unplugged last week, but big ones like Bank of China, and deny them uh, access to their dollar accounts in New York. Do not permit them to do business in the United States, which means they don't do business anywhere outside of China. Um, And this is there are a number of banks that are probably guilty of money laundering, um, but Bank of China certainly. And, And essentially, we start to look at trade relations with China And we start to um, impose the costs on, for instance, these predatory trade practices. Um, You know, we go across the board. Um, We could start to, for instance, tell Taipei, you know, if you want to declare yourself to be the Republic of Taiwan, go be our guest because we'll recognize you. There's all sorts of things that we can do, Buck, that we and, and some of these things we should absolutely do. Um, But we haven't been willing to do them. We have not been willing to impose costs on China because, as we saw in the administration of George W. Bush and the last one as well, um, we have placed the integration of China into the international system above our priority of disarming the North Koreans. So the Chinese look at that and say, well, you know, if you're not serious, America, about North Korea, why should we be? And that's our fault, Buck. We're speaking to Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown. Gordon, a couple more questions for you, ones that I think everyone uh, really wants to get a sense of the answer to. Uh, first one, uh, if if there is U.S. military action taken against North Korea uh, in some capacity, 
But if we, if we go direct military action against North Korea, what is, is there any scenario in which the North Koreans don't just respond with all-out war, in your opinion? Yes. Actually, I think the more probable response on the part of North Korea, if uh, in response to surgical strikes on their missile and nuke sites, is to do nothing or virtually very little. But nonetheless, I would never recommend that at this stage because the risk um, of things going wrong means hundreds of thousands of casualties in the first hours in a general war on the Korean peninsula. And then the casualties just mount up from there. We could end up in the world's first nuclear exchange. We could have China on the other side of a war with us. So um, these are risks that someday we may have to take, but not now. Now, Gordon, last one for you. Uh, is there what, what does the world look like? What happens if no real action is taken, if we don't ratchet up uh, dip, uh, sanctions and take other diplomatic actions and pressure China, or even if we do, and for whatever reason it's insufficient, in two years we find out, or three years, or whenever it may be, that North Korea has ICBMs with nuclear missiles on them that can hit anywhere, anywhere in the world, how does the world change that day when, that, when the world realizes this? Well, the world changes when the North Koreans not only have a deterrent, because we can live with a deterrent, um, but we can't live with North Korea using their nukes to try to extort South Korea and the United States. In other words, to use them for blackmail. And I think the North Koreans are definitely going to try to do that because they've never given up their goal of ruling the entire Korean peninsula, which means the extinction of the South Korean state, which is our treaty ally. Um, and so clearly um, the world changes for the worse when North Korea does feel confident in its arsenal. Gordon Chang, everyone go to GordonChang.com for more of his writing and analysis. Gordon, always great to have you. Thank you for making the time. Oh, thank you so much, Buck. Team, we are going to hit a quick break. 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. The fight for Raqqa is uh, entering a, a stage now where I think uh, we have to come to grips with the very likely uh, reality of U.S. proxy forces in, in control of that city before all too long. Um, and you had a Washington Post columnist talking about his recent trip to Syria, because this hour I wanted to just do national security. We're, we're going to talk in the next hour. Just, you know, we're we're going to talk quite a bit about hashtag CNN blackmail. The, the CNN blackmail story, which is in incredible, by the way, that uh, it, it has reached this point. And I think it also sets some very sets up some very tr uh, troubling questions for journalism overall in, in the Trump era. Um, but I know many of you are like, yeah, none of this is, is surprising, Buck. But this hour, national security wanted to finish up with some thoughts on on Syria and this is what uh, Washington Post columnist David Ignatius said about his recent trip there. To say something that in some ways is, is uh, uh, sympathetic to, to, to Trump, but as I traveled across Syria, meeting with um, Syrian uh, fighters who were trying to take down the regime of Bashar al-Assad, every time the name President Trump was mentioned, there were, there were cheers from the audience. The big attacks that have taken place around Raqqa, one in particular, a surprise landing by helicopter, I was told by the top U.S. commanders would not have taken place if it hadn't been for President Trump's decision to delegate military authorities mm -hmm. down to the 
the level of command. I mean, under Obama, that would have taken a couple weeks of White House meetings, and they still wouldn't have made up their mind. Do you hear what that guy just said? The Trump administration's approach in Syria has resulted in real gains on the ground against the Islamic State in a way that clearly would not have happened under the Obama administration. Now, I know there's only so much uh, comfort we can take or so much uh, that you can really derive of worth out of the intellectual exercise of going back and saying, see, we were right. Those of us who were pointing out during the years of Obama as commander-in-chief that he was incredibly slow to act in Iraq, that he was slow to act in Syria. It's not that he didn't do these things, by the way, or that he was unwilling to do anything, but he wanted it to be a process that was drawn out and that would leave much of the cleanup to whatever administration came after him, which is, is what's happening right now. But the Trump administration, much maligned for its foreign policy or really just maligned for Trump, right? I shouldn't say maligned for its foreign policy. There's just a, a decision that has been made by the media that everything that Trump does is terrible and wrong and he is the worst. And that, of course, extends to his foreign policy. And that's also, I, I should note, the foreign policy is, is really the province uh, among media types of uh, the Ivy League elites. Of course, it's funny because Trump went to University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, which is arguably the top three, people would say number one, top three, whatever, one of the best business schools uh, in the country. Uh, but that the Trump administration was willing to uh, delegate authority to that lower level and that that has resulted in what's been a much swifter series of uh, ground maneuvers against the Islamic State than anything that we had seen during the Obama years to deal with this problem, I think that should also be more of note in the news cycle. Uh, that That deserves... A moment of, of reflection from a press corps that has, for the entirety of Trump's time in office, just been suggesting that he's a, a complete moron, that he's some kind of a, an, an imbecile, particularly on foreign policy and on national security. Well, you know, Trump's smart enough to put good generals in place at the top level, right, with Mattis and McMaster, and to allow them to do what they think is best on the ground and to allow them to delegate below that level and this is how efficient organizations work. This is how an efficient administration would work. And now the Islamic State is being driven out of its two biggest cities, its main urban strongholds of Mosul and Raqqa, after years. And we are in a place where we're discussing what a post-territory holding Islam, anti-Islamic state campaign looks like, because ISIS is not just going away. As I said, you're, now you're going to move from clearing to holding, meaning you're going to move from proxy and U.S. forces on the ground uh, kicking out Islamic state fighters who are in the open policing and uh, and maintaining uh, maintaining ground to fighting a counterinsurgency campaign. And also to making decisions about the extent we're willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Assad regime if it comes to that and what we'd be willing to do. So that's my national security thoughts for today. We're going to move on to CNN blackmail in just a few. 
He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. It was the wrestling gif seen around the world. Donald Trump retweeted a short internet uh, video, which is what a gif is, showing a, a what had been Trump versus Vince McMahon World Wrestling Entertainment uh, Exchange, where uh, Trump body slam, I don't know if it's a body slam or kind of a flying elbow, I'm not even sure what you'd call it, uh, but d- d- pulls pulls a wrestling move and and slams down who was, in fact, Vince McMahon, but with C- the CNN logo imposed on Vince McMahon's face. So it's Trump slamming CNN uh, in this so- somewhat literally, although it's, of course, figurative in that it's the CNN logo and not actually CNN. But you get what I'm saying, right? Trump slams CNN. I was enjoying the uh, long weekend and not spending too much time thinking about this i actually managed to for about a day and a half maybe or two days stay away from social media which i have to tell you it's like a detox it's like a cleanse just i left my phone uh for hours and hours at a time didn't didn't even i couldn't check it didn't have it on me no computer no phone this is something that i need to make a more regular part of my life we're all becoming uh not just uh, addicted to our phones but uh, overtaken by them. I mean, just it's it's inescapable. We are uh, wedded to these things in a way that I don't think anybody could have even uh, imagined to, ten years ago. But I digress. So nice to have a day of a couple of days of just being a, just being a person who didn't have to see what the latest angry Twitter or Facebook uh, idiot had to say about something I said somewhere or did or whatever. It's just nice to be away from all of that, right? But I did check in a little bit because, like I said, addicted to the phone and and the uh, new and really to the news and commentary. And what I saw was all of this outrage about how this uh, this gif, this short video of Trump body slamming CNN, was encouraging violence against the media, which I I just don't know how anyone could honestly. Uh, honestly make this case. I mean, you, you had uh, CNN's Jim Acosta, who, who by the way, ha- has turned battling the press secretary uh, belligerently into a, its own form of theater, right? Its own form of political theater. CNN's Jim Acosta saying we, that this is, this is a question of stopping that, not, that, that the president retweeting this CNN logo getting slammed is, is going to lead to real violence, essentially. We have to stand up to this. We have to confront this and say that it's wrong. And my concern is, and I know it's shared by others, is that this kind of rhetoric, this kind of behavior is going to lead to a journalist being hurt. So you see they they establish this premise that uh, Trump is um, responsible now. If anything bad happens to a journalist for the rest of Trump's time in office, if someone punches a journalist that they don't like somewhere, it will it will be because of Trump. You see, that's what they that's what they want you to believe. That's what the uh, the narrative has already become. That's what they are constructing here, a circumstance in which any violence against a reporter 
can be attributed by the media to the climate, the toxic climate that Donald Trump created. This comes mere weeks after a mass assassination attempt of U.S. Republican conservative members of Congress by a leftist Democrat Bernie Sanders supporter that the media cared about for about two days, and that was it. So just keep this in mind for a sense of proportionality. And if we're going to start to uh, put allegations out there about how CNN acts more like a political action committee and less like a news organization, oh, and we're about to get deeper into that in a second, then we should have at hand these facts. And we should be paying attention to this this reality. Um, So CNN uh, gets slammed. And Trump tweets this out. Reporters are saying this is encouraging violence. I think it's just silly. I mean, I, I, I wish the president at some level wouldn't do this stuff because I don't enjoy it dominating the news cycle. But I will say, and I'll come back to this thought later, I also understand. I've really been trying to get deeper into why, why is it that so many people who are uh, conservative, who are Republican, who are on the right— seem to just be willing to go along with Trump's behavior, regardless of what it is, in the eyes of many as president. And they see it as he's he's fighting a, a, a war, a media war against the media. And that means there's going to be missteps. There's going to be uh, there's going to be collateral damage. He's going to uh, make make mistakes along the way. And he's. If he's going to win or if he's going to be successful, however we define that in a struggle against the media, he's got to be willing to fight dirty, too, because we know they fight dirty. Very dirty. In fact, that's what I'm about to get into here is just how incredibly off-putting and uh, disconcerting and honestly kind of frightening at some level. The media's antipathy, media's hatred for Trump is such that there are very few limits now. Um, there are very few limits with regard to uh, what principles and what ideas they will discard when it is politically convenient, and we see it happening every day. Um, but back to the wrestling gift. So Trump retweets this thing, and it, the media gets all freaked out. And I, I know that people will say that uh, this is Trump's... Um, uh, this is Trump's plan all along. In fact, uh, Representative Scott Taylor was saying this to uh, CNN's Allison Camerata. I think every time he does this, you guys overreact. And I say you guys, I mean the media in general. You overreact and you play right into his hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, it's, ironically, CNN mm-hmm. reported on him learning politics from the World Wrestling Federation in 2015. Yeah. Uh, and th- and now you're like, oh, my God, he's inciting violence. I just don't I don't think any American, uh, most Americans, excuse me, certainly some maybe, but most Americans out there believe that he's inciting violence from a WWF clip. Um, right. so, so I, just, I, mean, I think so, here, yeah, here you I, are. I, I, and I've, I've watched your hold on a second. I've watched your segments and yep. you keep talking about this. There's mm-hmm. tons of news out there. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about real issues. I agree. I don't know how anyone who is an adult who's being honest about this can say that that Trump is inciting violence against reporters. Is it childish? Should the president be doing it? Different discussion. And childish is a little too far. You know, is it a little... uh, Should the president be doing this? Uh, You you can take either side of this, and and I, I leave that to you. 
Um, I I wouldn't do it if I were president, but I'm not president, and I'm never going to be, so there you have it. Uh, but then you get into the media's reaction to this. And I don't think, by the way, it, it's a it's whataboutism to continue to uh, compare the way that the press treats this Trump retweet of a wrestling video, a wrestling clip that shows CNN getting slammed to the way the media reacted to the outrage and the or the really honestly, the short duration of outrage and uh, doggedness of reporting and depth of reporting on the shooting that that could have claimed the lives of many Republican members of Congress almost did. That faded away rather quickly from the uh, the headlines. Not a lot of uh, additional think pieces on that. And this is why people don't trust the media. This is why they understand that there is an agenda, that there is a bias that's at work. But it gets better. And by better, I mean worse. But it gets more fascinating, friends, because so Trump retweets this thing. And it's out there, and the media is all, oh, woe is us, look at this, it's so terrible, you know, Trump is such a, uh, you know, such a barbarian, all that stuff. And then CNN decides to find out, well, who made this little video that the the president retweeted and and got hundreds of thousands of retweets and was obviously seen by millions of people? Who's responsible for it? They tracked a person down. And wrote an article about the individual who is, again, reportedly, I'm basing this off of CNN reporting, so, you know, take it or leave it. But uh, there is someone who posted an apology online uh, who was the Reddit user. Uh, Reddit is a a website where people can post stuff and answer threads and questions and people who are—I honestly am rarely— I am not familiar with Reddit. I mean, it comes up sometimes, but I'm not somebody who knows much about it. Um, And it usually comes up in the context of a a Reddit user, you know, uh, tried to figure out who the murderer was after police reported it. And, you know, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. But, you know, Reddit is a place where people will sometimes crowdsource ideas. And anyway, it's also a place where Internet trolls congregate and say nasty stuff. So you had this Reddit user with Donald Trump hitting a CNN, uh, hitting the CNN logo, whatever, taking it down. I forget even now what it was. It was like a running clothesline kind of thing. Um, And they didn't share the name of the individual, but he's he's already come out and written a uh, an apology. CNN decided for now, though, not to uh, name him. But this is what this is what. This is CNN. This is what they wrote in their article on this individual who made this gif that Donald Trump retweeted that got all this attention that had reporters saying that he was that the president was encouraging violence against them. This is what he wrote. CNN is not publishing Han. Let's just say Han Solo, although that's not the guy's actual screen handle here. Uh, Han Solo's name because he is a private citizen who has issued an extensive statement of apology, showed his remorse by saying he has taken down all all his offending posts, and because he has said he is not going to repeat this ugly behavior on social media again. In addition, he said his statement could serve as an example to others not to do the same. CNN reserves the right to publish his identity 
Should any of that change? Now, my friends, this is how we get to hashtag CNN blackmail. What the heck is going on here? This is a private citizen who is who created the video he created, by the way, is, is a is a total nothing burger in terms of there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's it's completely protected speech. It's parody. It's actually kind of funny. I mean, the, the whole CNN gif that I saw, at least, there's nothing wrong with it unless there's other versions out there I'm unaware of. But this guy also, based on his Reddit profile, however they tracked him down, uh, posted some anti-Semitic stuff and just other troll-like nastiness. So CNN then makes this subjective judgment that this guy needs to be put on notice that if he keeps doing that, if he continues to write nasty stuff on the Internet, they will out him. Now, this raises some fascinating questions about what are the obligations of a news organization to not just protect uh, anonymous users and commenters on the Internet, but also just to protect sources in general? I think that's a fair question to be asking now. Uh, this guy wasn't a source, but I, I just just give it some time and we'll see if there's some media organizations that decide that, well, you know, we granted a source anonymity, but then we didn't like him. So we decided to out the source and ruin his career or maybe his life, you know, depends on the circumstances. How long do you think before that happens, given what we've seen here? But I want to get into the uh, debate that has broken out now, not just about CNN's ethics here or lack thereof on this issue, but just also what is it, uh, what can we expect when we post uh, comments on the Internet. What should we expect? What is a news organization's obligation to the public when a private citizen is writing stuff that is nasty? Do they do this to everyone now? Do they try to find is, is anyone who writes something nasty on the Internet fair game for the media to track him down and uh, dox him, as they say, to put information out there so that everyone is aware of it? Uh, what do you think about this, by the way? What do you think about CNN's behavior? And since I haven't had a chance to even ask you about it, what do you think about Donald Trump retweeting this video of CNN wrestling video? You know, you got to check it. You got, you got to see it to know what I'm talking about. I, I can describe it only so much on air. Um, but 844-900-BUCK, if you want to weigh in on this, 844-900-2825. Let's take him. John in Arizona on the iHeart app. What's up, John? Hey, how you doing? Hey, great show. I appreciate your perspective. Uh, you're asking the question about the Trump CNN video. I, I think CNN's desperate right now. I mean, they're trailing in the ratings. And uh, when it comes to the news media, they have an inferior product. And I mean, they're not going to highlight anything good that's coming out of the Trump White House. Can I just so, say that, John, that yeah, there, I, there was a period of time where on the CNN website – which is trafficked by tens of millions of people, on the website there was, in fact, a, a period of time when the main story was tracking down the guy who made this gif. That was their, that was the biggest news story they could cover in the whole world. That, to me, seems... Yeah, of all the things that are going path, on That, right that seems pathological. That, that, that seems really unhinged. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, yeah, I don't know. I, it's, uh, you know, we talk about... These fringe organizations like uh, WikiLeaks, you know, the reason that those organizations gain legitimacy is because the American people couldn't count on the mainstream media to provide the truth or tell the story. So, you know, guys like Julian Assange will be 
validated because we can't trust the mainstream media to tell the story straight. Thanks for calling in, John. Appreciate it. From Arizona, good to talk to you, sir. Shields high. Uh, uh, sorry, Stan in Mississippi on WBUV. What's up, Stan? Hey, Buck. Uh, yeah, you had asked a question about the CNN video, so I figured I'd chime in. I I love it when uh, Trump does stuff like that because, you know, he gets to get his opinion out right away. And I was one of the ones that retweeted it, so uh, it just kills me the way CNN, uh, how many times have they done this in the past that's never been known and act like a big bully and just think that they can get away with things like this? Yeah, well, when you understand the full, uh, when, when I get into the full context here, Stan, it just, it just gets worse and worse. And uh, that, you know, that, that they would tell someone, you know, if you, if you do things we don't like as a news organization, we're going to make you no longer a private citizen. We're going to make you a matter of news coverage. Uh, what, what kind of ethical standard is that? And this is why CNN now, blackmail was a, tr- was a trending hashtag on Twitter for much of the day. Yeah, that was Brian Stetler that put out, uh, who made this video? Let's find out who made this video. And it's like, uh, yeah, Stelter okay. put that out there. Why does who made the video even matters? I don't. I mean, the the video to me is is a who cares situation. That that Trump retweeted it is obviously what got it so much attention. So I just, you know, CNN is fixated on the attacks against it, and I think that they do pro, they doth protest too much on a lot of this fake news stuff. Like they they keep saying, you know, no, no, we're just journalists, no. and then they run into problems like this and Stan thank you for calling in sure uh, sir um, they uh, they also had some quotes I see this the the Federalist has been all over this uh, CNN tweets out from CNN politics two fake quotes on the 4th of July one from Abraham Lincoln and one from Benjamin Franklin now to be fair the, the quotes as I understand it aren't really so much fake as they are uh, inaccurate there's some difference you know they, they tweeted out from Abra- they thought Abraham Lincoln said, uh, let the people know the facts and the country will be safe. It's let them know the truth and the country is safe. So uh, they didn't track that one down. And, and then there's also Benjamin Franklin. Without freedom of thought, there can be no such thing as wisdom and no such thing as public liberty without freedom of speech. Um, and then, well, you know, that one is just not really that one's just not really a thing, apparently, from what I see here. Um, Dailywire.com also did a write up of this. So, you know, making mistakes. The mistakes all go in the same direction, though, which, as I've been saying now for many months to you, indicates an agenda, right? When you make a mistake and it's random, well, no one's perfect. When you keep making mistakes and they all seem, they're all in the same area and they all go in the same direction in that area, right? They're all regarding Trump and they're negative to Trump. Then people start to ask questions about, well, what exactly is going on here? Why would you do such a thing? Why do you keep making those mistakes? And uh, CNN doesn't want to get into it. I, I haven't finished my discussion of um, of this, so we're, we're going to tackle that and, and much more here coming up in a few minutes. But if you want to call in, 844-900-BUCK, uh, we will take that, and we will get into some other discussions of some fascinating stuff going on in the world in a few minutes, team. So stay with me through this break. Be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Team, I want to uh, 
introduce you to an author. Uh, we're going to go back into the world of discussing international affairs and uh, national security here for a moment. And then I promise you we'll return to the uh, CNN the uh, CNN discussion about uh, the CNN blackmail. Uh, but some of you will recall this event, I'm sure. On January 27, 2011, on the streets of Lahore, Pakistan, a U.S. government security contractor found himself staring down the barrel of a gun. Defending himself, he shot and killed two men who were, depending on who you ask, illiterate robbers or Pakistani agents. The violent confrontation quickly escalated into a diplomatic crisis, making front-page headlines all over the world. We are joined now by the author of a new book, The Contractor, How I Landed in a Pakistani Prison and Ignited Diplomatic Crisis, uh, Raymond Davis. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for having me, sir. Uh, sir, tell me, uh, th- this is your story. You've written it. Tell me about it. What what happened back in uh, in 2011? Uh, 2011, uh, yes, this is my story. Uh, I just uh, This is my version that I wanted to put out myself. It's not... Um, not associated with the government. Uh, there's no, there was no help from the government on this. It's my story. Uh, that's why it's everyone who now reads it's like, wait a minute, there's a lot missing. It's told from my perspective and my point of view. Okay, and well, well, what happened? I mean, what happened back then? So uh, I was out. It was a normal day on a drive. Uh, pulled up to a busy intersection. Uh, lots of traffic. Lots of people. Uh, looking around as you normally do in that environment. And I look ahead, and there's a guy with a gun coming out of his waistband. And it's initial shock of, oh, that's a gun. And then he racks the gun and starts to bring it up. And that's when I drew my gun, defended myself. And then there's a whole series and chain of events that, that occur after that. So you defended yourself against two individuals, and— uh, you use lethal force, and then then what happened? I mean, you you have to walk us through your story, Raymond. I, I don't know your story. Uh, yes, sir. Well, I mean, it's it's all in the book. It's there's a series of events of, you know, uh, things that happen on the ground immediately after the shooting. Uh, everyone thinks that the 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 people there would immediately mob and go crazy, but they didn't. Uh, everyone was kind of shocked and stunned when the the shooting occurred, and then they came in and looked and saw, oh wait, this other guy had a gun. Uh, then everyone was like, uh, okay, can we kind of see what's going on here? But then as uh, through series of events, I'm sitting there and I'm sitting in the car, uh, you know, called the embassy trying to get help, waiting for them. Um, the car starts to roll. I had forgot to put it in into uh, park, and they all thought I was leaving. So here they start hitting the car, hit breaking the window. They're trying to get me out. I decided I don't want to be there leave the scene and through series of driving and, you know, not really being able to go fast, I was intercepted, taken into police custody. And then from there, you know, went through the the Pakistani legal system and it's all chronicled in the book. It's laid out. So you were taken into custody. How long were you in Pakistani custody? Uh, 49 days, sir. And tell us a bit about what that was like. Must've been harrowing. Um, to a degree, yes. Uh, there was, there was, there were ups and downs. Um, there were, you know, times where you you try to tell yourself, you know, from the training that you received, like I received from the military, of you know, hey, stay strong, uh, things are working. And everyone who is in, you know, been in the government for any length of time knows that the wheels of diplomacy turn very slowly. 
because a lot of people are talking and working through issues. So I understood it was going to take time. Um, I just didn't realize it was going to take 49 days. But the uh, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you, what did I assume you had interactions with the Pakistani government or at least the uh, Pakistani police during this period? Uh, what, what were their findings about what were they telling you during this period, at least when you were in prison, about the individuals who confronted you? The, uh, the initial uh, investigations that were going on uh, early on, like as soon as the incident occurred, the, uh, the police were actually doing a, a very fair and partial investigation into the, the events that, that led up to uh, all of this. Um, but the next morning, as the police were sitting there and they're going through, they're, they're receiving phone calls and they're pulling the guys, you know, basically backgrounds. Things that I didn't know uh, until probably close to, to me getting out of there, they started actually uh, giving us the reports and stuff to my attorneys. Eventually, I went through five court hearings without anyone available. But um, eventually, they, they turned over paperwork. It said, hey, these guys had been arrested for robbery and all these other things. Um, but the, the police actually tried to do a, a fair investigation. Um, the next morning, though, it starts to change. The You can see that there's a uh, chain of events, and everything starts to kind of turn a, you know, askew wildly. Uh, I, I got up the next morning, was waiting to go to court. Uh, the first police officer, one of the police officers in the room, he was explaining to me about the, uh, the incident. You know, and I wasn't talking. I was just sitting there. And I was basically done talking to the guys I had given a statement, so I just wasn't saying anything else. But he said, hey, you know, the two guys you shot, they expired. The guy who was run over by, you know, the team that was trying to help you, he expired. And the wife, she took poison last night and killed herself. And he goes, all these deaths are on you. So as I went to court, uh, you know, that, that a few moments later, the – police officer was standing there and he was telling the prosecutor he asked me how I pled and I said I don't know what your terms are here but not guilty self-defense I said that's the terms that we would use in America and the police officer starts to explain in English what had happened what had transpired the prosecutor stopped him partway through his talk and whispered in his ear he gets this real weird look on his face and then he starts to finish the story in Urdu and I thought what what's going on here when he finishes the prosecutor looks at me and says how do you you know do you speak our language and I said no sir I do not he said well someone had told me a little birdie told me you spoke our language I said no I do not and it was at that moment that I realized this has changed dramatically they're trying to paint me as a spy and this is the route that they're going and that's when I it, you started seeing it more and more prevalent everywhere throughout interrogations and them coming in to talk to me and all of that. We're speaking to Raymond Davis. He's a former U.S. Army soldier, and he's the author of The Contractor, How I Landed in a Pakistani Prison and Ignited a Diplomatic Crisis. Uh, so, Raymond, what that so so you at this point, you feel like the the trial is being politicized and stacked against you. Uh, what did you end up, either what did you think at the time, or what did you end up thinking about the individuals who confronted you on that street? Why did they do it, and who were they? You know what? It's still, no one really knows still to this day who they, the the true story. Um, neither government's going to come forward 
and know that the the exact answer um, according to whoever you believe in the paper, they were just two normal guys who were robbing people. Um, but in you know documents that we got through uh, the court legal system, they had been arrested 67 times for robbery, yet they were still able to have you know their gun permit passes with them. So were they two low-level ISI guys? Who knows? Um, there was a report that came down through um, through the U.S. government that said L.E.T. Lashkari Taiba, uh, which has since changed their name, but uh, they wanted to kill or capture a uh, quote unquote Blackwater operative, you know, in Lahore, and all they were doing was looking for you know Western males fit. Uh, possibly have, you know, tattoos, Oakley sunglasses, you know, the, the typical Western um, guy that you would see. They were looking for, for that opportunity to kill or capture one of them. There was a bounty put out for that. So were they those guys, you know, drove up and just turned around and said, oh, wow, look at this opportunity. We're going to make money. And you know, we still don't know. So, Raymond, how did you have, how did you get out? I mean, at the end of this ordeal after 49 days in Pakistani custody uh how did your release how do you find out about it how did you feel and you know tell me take me take me to that point uh the very last day uh showed up for for a court hearing uh didn't know it was going to be the last day uh we show up you know I, I you know get pulled in uh and it, everything seems very typical uh we came in um got into the courtroom and I was supposed to have attorney-client privilege, you know, with my attorneys for the first time. Didn't think that was going to happen because they told me to be ready at 8 a.m. And 8 a.m. came. I was ready. Uh, and I sat in my, my cell until noon. And then finally they came in and said, hey, you're late. Let's go. Um, so we, we go in. I'm like, okay, they're playing the games again. They're not going to let me have this time with my attorneys. But they did. They gave us a few minutes. Um, we talked, and I said, hey, what's the game plan? What are we doing? They said, hey, we're just trying to delay the proceedings again. That's all. And I'm like, okay, you guys are the experts. Uh, walked out of that room, went in to the another basically jail cell inside the courtroom, and that's when everyone started showing up. And there was a, a new attorney there I'd never seen before. And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking. I'm like, something's very different. This guy you know, goes up to the judge. He's speaking in Urdu. And I had noticed that when when the atmosphere changes, when it's it's usually very chaotic inside the room, it's very loud, you can't really hear what's going on. But I had noticed that every time it was very quiet, something different was going on. So I just stayed quiet. I had attorneys up there representing me at this time. They would come back and tell me if uh, if anything was different. So uh, the the American attorney Paul comes running back and he's like, "Hey, they're going to do the blood money. Uh, we're we're going to get you out today." And he runs back up. And I looked at Carmel and I'm like, "What is going on?" And she said, "Oh, this is a contingency. We've been planning it. Didn't want to say anything to you, you know, get your hopes up or anything." But she's like, "Yeah, we've been planning this. We're going to get you out if they accept the the money. We're going to get you out today, and you're going to go home." And you know, it's it's one of those you still don't want to get your hopes up but you want to hope against hope that that everything's going to work out the the people came up and accepted the money and then they came back and basically released me at that point what uh raymond before we let you go just one quick question for you 
why'd you write the book? What do you want people to know that they wouldn't know before reading it? So when I got back, uh, living in, in Colorado, the, it was shortly afterward. Well, what, not shortly, it was a month later. Um, you know, there's, everyone had, you know, figured out who I was and what had happened and all that stuff, but they still wouldn't come around. The neighbors and stuff wouldn't come around and, and talk. Uh, we were out on uh, Halloween and my son, who was three years old at the time, was standing out there with a bag of a little bowl of candy. And he's dressed up, and he doesn't want to go trick-or-treat. He just wants to hand candy out. And he's going, hey, trick-or-treat, come get the candy. And no one would allow their families to come into our yard. And my son is standing there crying, and you know, he's like, Dad, why, why don't they come get the candy? It's trick-or-treat. You know, it's so hard. How do you explain to a three-year-old kid you know, what's happening, you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And I told myself, I said, you know what, I really don't want my son growing up, going into school and them saying, hey, let's do an experiment, Google your parents, and we'll see what comes up. So I didn't want him to learn about it that way. And I wanted people to, to put a human face on it and know that, you know, you go overseas, you do a job for the government, you're not a villain like, every, like the media and everyone wants to, to turn you into, that you have you know, feelings and you have a life and you have a family. And I, I wrote the book so that my son would know my side of the story and others would know and he wouldn't treat, be treated unfairly. Raymond Davis, uh, Davis is the author of The Contractor, How I Landed in a Pakistani Prison and Ignited, Ignited a Diplomatic Crisis. Uh, Raymond, thank you very much for calling in. We appreciate it. Thank you, sir, for having me. Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be back with much more. Stay with me. Back to uh, CNN black hashtag CNN blackmail for a little bit, uh, and then uh, I want to move on to some other some other topics that are um, certainly worth us discussing uh, and and getting into in, in some detail. Uh, next hour, I want to talk to you about the uh, most recent assassination of a police officer. This one here in New York City. Uh, and that will tell you, I'll tell you my thoughts on that. Uh, and also a very disturbing report out of the United Kingdom uh, with regard to the procedure known as FGM, female genital mutilation. Um, so I, I, I know we're, we're talking about some, some tough stuff later on in the show. And we started off with a lot of national security. Um, but let's uh, get back to this CNN thing for a moment. You have uh, this, because again, this is dominating this is dominating the the news cycle today. Um, this is what the chattering classes are chattering about. This is what has them most engaged. Uh, and so CNN responds to this individual, or, or they find this individual, and they say that they will they reserve the right to publish his identity should any of that change. That's the blackmail part of this, right? So. This is a news organization telling somebody who thinks he's anonymous online, which this is a lesson to all of us, or a reminder, I should say, not a lesson, that anonymity uh, online is is a fiction. It, it does not really exist. It's just a question of uh, how far you go with something before they'll find you, right? I mean, if someone were online posting threats to the president, for example, uh, having, you know, a, a screen name... I am a, a leftist idiot lunatic. Uh, that that's not going to that's not going to prevent the FBI from knocking on your door. 
right? We, we all get that. So it's just a, a question of how far along you are and, and whether uh, a court will allow the IP address to be traced and all that. But, of, of course, for criminal acts, it's, it's uh, easy to do. Um, the moment that speech crosses over into the criminal realm. But then you get into, well, what about this? What about a person who's acting as a, as a private citizen, but posting publicly, but thinks he's anonymous? Uh, what are the obligations of a news entity to either out or protect that person from the massive uh, backlash and, and all the scrutiny that can come, and the consequences, forget about the screening for a second, the consequences that can come with being a part of a, a national news story like this. I haven't seen much of what this guy, I don't know his name because I haven't posted it, I haven't seen much of what he, I haven't seen anything other than this, the uh, the gif of Trump body slamming CNN. By the way, I noticed that it is described, depending on the site you're on, as either punching, body slamming, clotheslining. You can see who knows the wrestling terminology and who does it in the media. It's pretty funny. Um, but it, it's kind of a running clothesline, I think, is what would be the most accurate. I don't, I don't think it, a body slam would be if he picked CNN up off the ground, and you know, and you kind of put your arm, wrap your arm around the neck, and then also arm goes between the uh, the the legs and into the small of the back, and you throw him on the ground. Right, that's a body slam. I don't think that's what this was like a running clothesline. Uh, I'd be impressed if Trump was body slamming Vince McMahon. But I digress. Okay, so uh, you have Texas Senator Ted Cruz weighing in um, before I go on with the debate over social media shaming, which is a very important one, by the way, and it's one that I uh, have lots lots of thoughts on. Uh, but Ted Cruz said that CNN may, quote, be this is from The Hill, be guilty of extortion by allegedly threatening to publish the identity of a man who made a parody video showing President Trump wrestling with the cable news network. Uh, Cruz tweeted out, Troubling, I assume CNN's lawyers are examining 16816 theft by extortion. If CNN constructively obtained the gift maker's IP, it's a crime if they threaten to disseminate any information tending to subject any person to hatred, contempt, or ridicule. Um, I, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's going to fly. So interesting, interesting legal analysis from Senator Cruz, but I'm pretty sure CNN's not going to get charged with a crime on this one. But is what they did unethical? Is it wrong? That's a separate discussion from whether it's illegal. And uh, we'll continue a bit of that and much more coming up. Stay with me. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. So CNN's pushing back on all of the outrage today over uh, the piece they wrote on the guy who made the video that shows Trump uh, clotheslining and punching a CNN uh, logo, basically, right? Which was the—I checked on this in the break. I want to make sure—the most retweeted Trump uh, tweet of all time. Right. This got the most retweets of anything Trump has ever, which says a lot because Trump has tens of millions of of Twitter followers. Uh, so that's that gives you a sense of the reach. Uh, the press initially was saying that this was likely to inspire violence against the against the media, which I don't think it is. I think that's a, a gross exaggeration. Um, and by the way, uh, Kathy Griffin met with the Secret Service for, I think, an hour is what I was what I read. Um, 
Uh, so they did think that there was there was room room enough for concern there. They did decide to sit down and have a chat with her. I figured they would have to, considering that an MMA fighter, I remember during the Obama administration, who said that he wanted Obama to get in the ring with him, uh, the Secret Service met with him, too, uh, which I thought was excessive, but they did. So uh, threats against the president are taken very seriously, which is, uh, which is the way it should be. And Kathy Griffin got a, got a little visit, in addition to everything else, a little visit from the uh, United States government for her very unfunny photograph. Uh, as was pointed out, though, by some I saw on Twitter, you'll notice that the photographer, the media, not that I ever saw, didn't go after the photographer there. So look at the, the parallel here with the Trump situation. So Trump retweets this. Uh, this uh, it's really a meme. It's a video meme. And Trump puts this out there, and they decide to track this guy down. I still don't understand really why. What matters here is that Trump retweeted the image, not who made the initial image, because the, the image is not anything that's... By the way, there are... I mean, you are drowning in CNN memes, you know, CNN getting punched, drop kicked, uh, CNN getting probably, you know, tied up and, and thrown into a river. I mean, the CNN logo is taking a beating these days. Now, it's the CNN logo. It's not actually a person. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's okay. Um, but this is... Uh, this is where this this is where the situation has gone now. And CNN pushed back uh, also on the m- rumor that was out there that the uh, creator of the gift was 15 years old. This is what CNN wrote in its official press release earlier today. CNN decided not to publish the name of the Reddit user out of concern for his safety. Any assertion that the network blackmailed or coerced him is false. The user, who is an adult male, not a 15-year-old boy, apologized and deleted his account before ever speaking with our reporter. CNN included its decision uh, to withhold the user's identity in an effort to be completely transparent that there was no deal. Uh, What is the news value in, in getting behind the anonymity of a Reddit user and exposing him to the public. What's the news? Are, there's now. Now they're relying on the fact that he said anti-Semitic, or nasty, gross, uh, racist, bigoted stuff. Not in this specific GIF, but in other, uh, in other Reddit posts. So does that now? I, I just want to know what the rules are for media now. Does that mean that you can be open to well, doxing, right? To to the full fury and and hatred of of all those who engage in this stuff on social media right the the social media mob coming for you which as we know has very real consequences people lose their livelihoods uh, people's reputations are ruined it it's no small thing when the social media mob comes for you and i do think we need to look at this more broadly as as a society and uh, you know as a country uh the the internet is is a relatively new thing. You know what we think of it, how we use it, and that's evolving all the time. We don't have a lot of uh, a lot of things we can point to in history to say, well, this is how that went, so that's how this should go with the with the internet, right? This is it is different, and I do have uh, well, I, I find it really grotesque and and very uh, disturbing. That there are so many people who, well, one, of course, say just the worst stuff on on the Internet all the time. It's become a look 
under the rock. You know, it's become a way of peeking deep into the psyche of people who overwhelmingly, I think, are just are, are well, there are the there are the uh, the trolls that write racist, bigoted stuff because they want attention because it gets attention. Right. If you if you say the most outrageous thing, you will have people that respond to you. Um, but also, I think that there's a venting, there's a catharsis, there's a uh, this. It'll make me feel better to just be to just be as gross as possible online for whatever reason. To to say things that are really uh, nasty and hurtful and damaging. I know I'm speaking in generalities here, right? Because the left uh, believes that a lot of mainstream conservative positions are tantamount to violence and and are are in their own way, grotesque. No, I'm talking about the stuff that we can all agree is really is really horrific, right? There, there are people who post neo-Nazi stuff online. There are people who post truly racist and, uh, and evil stuff. But does that mean, again, that there is a news media obligation or does the news media um, use its resources well and effectively to track down those people and expose them to public view. Um, you know, this this is a discussion. So you have a couple things here. You have the one, the outrage mob, which I'm just opposed to. I, I don't like the calls. For, I don't like calls for boycotts. I don't like calls for firings. I don't like any of that. Now, there's always circumstances that you know can be the exception to the rule. And then there's the media treatment of people who are saying stuff that is certainly outside of. Uh, outside of acceptable discourse, right? It's a gentle, polite way of saying, saying really horrific stuff online. So um, CNN here decided not to make this person's name public. As I said, he wrote an apology. I never believed that. I saw that initially this morning. I'm like, there's no way this guy was, I just don't, 15, that didn't, that didn't seem likely to me. Uh, So that, that's not a surprise. Um, But there's uh, a, a lively discussion underway right now as to whether the uh, whether CNN's ethics here uh, are well, well, they've been exposed in a way here. I mean, the main story on Fox News right now, quote, extremely unethical. Critics say CNN may have committed crime with threat to meme creator. I don't see how you can. I don't see how this is criminal, um, but I'm not a lawyer. So, you know, there's that uh, there's there's that aspect of it. But I mentioned this before, too. I I think it is only a matter of time before in the media's war against Trump and look, Trump's counteroffensive. There will come a time when outing sources uh, or outing people who speak off the record. You know, let's say let's say you're let me give you an example. I'm talking. Let's say you're in the Trump White House and you say some unflattering stuff the kind of gossip that the media has loved now for for many months to, the unflattering stuff about either how the white house operates or or how uh, you know how the trump administration's doing and let's say that when you when that trump administration official that let white house aide let's say i don't know you know white house advisor that's a better one white house advisor uh, is in good standing, relatively speaking, with the Politico's, Washington Post, and New York Times of the world, right? So he's he's more of the Reince Priebus mold in that he's he's not completely detested by the left. I'm not saying this, you know, not leave Reince out of this, but I just mean he's not someone who's completely detested by the left. But then down the line, he cuts off his access, or he all of a sudden doesn't want to play ball and doesn't want to 
uh, doesn't want to share information uh, that is a, a bad look for the administration. Do you think it's really beyond the reporters at this point at uh, New York Times, CNN, you name it, Washington Post? To decide, you know, we're just going to let everybody know who the source was for that earlier for that earlier hit piece and possibly get that person fired and and all of that. Now, some of you may say, well, Buck, uh, this is those the, those are the risks you run. Right. And those are the consequences of the action. All that I understand. But let's just then be clear that that means that journalists have if that happens, if we reach that point. Where sources are outed for political reasons. Uh, by the media organization that has ostensibly, because of the ethics of journalism, remember, journalists have gone to have gone to jail before to protect sources. That's happened in, in recent memory. Uh, if the media changes its tune on that, we should never, never again should they be allowed to pretend. The mainstream media should be allowed to pretend that they uh, take source protection seriously and that they take their ethics in journalism, their, their professional ethics, seriously. Now, we're, we're, we are not, we, that has not happened. That's not what this is. This is different, and I understand that. But I'm just trying to look ahead to, I think, what's coming. Because they've thrown everything they have at Trump so far, and it hasn't worked. And they have assumed that they would win this media war against him, but no, in fact, they have, they have yet to unseat this administration. They have yet to force Trump out of office. They have yet to turn his supporters against him. They've yet to turn his defenders in the media against him. So they're going to be looking for new ways. They're going to be looking for new approaches. And as I said before, some people will excuse Trump uh, playing by different rules because he's playing against an enemy that often just plays with no rules, meaning that the media will discard any pretense of fair play, of ethics, of integrity if it damages Trump. I think the next stop on that is, you know, any, anyone in this administration who speaks to the press, they better watch out. I don't, I, you know, for those of you who are saying, well, anyone who do that, they're, if that happens to them, you know, serves them right. What if, what if the media, they've been running with fake sources, fake stories, or I shouldn't say fake sources, but fake stories in the past. What if they mischaracterize it? What if they leave somebody out? What if they leave somebody from this White House or whatever out high and dry? Just because, just to make an example of them. I mean... I don't think it's that I don't think it's that uh, outrageous to think that that could or not outrageous out of bounds to think that that could happen. It is outrageous. Um, so that's where this is all pushing. Uh, and that is what I think uh, this will eventually lead to. We'll see. Uh, but this private citizen that they've they've gone after here uh, and their their threat that we would reveal his identity in the future, depending on his conduct. When do they waive that? When does that go away? If this guy, if it's found that he, you know, makes some other meme that gets some attention in the press, or that they're gonna, they're gonna out him, this is very disconcerting. All right, I, I wanted to uh, take a moment here to talk about our sponsor, this half-hour team. Uh, if you're hiring, you gotta know where you should post the jobs. So you can find the best candidates, and ZipRecruiter allows you to post your job to 100-plus job sites with just a single click. They've got fantastic technology that efficiently matches the right people to your job, and they do this better than anybody else in the industry. You really need to check them out. You don't have to worry about all the different emails and inboxes and all that other stuff. It all comes into one place. 
You simply screen, rate, and manage candidates, and ZipRecruiter has an easy-to-use dashboard that will help you get through all of it. So find out today why ZipRecruiter is used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates, and it gets you immediate results. And, you know, right now my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. We'll be right back. That uh, there are other accusations of possible uh, criminality when it comes to the CNN actions here, including, uh, I see a a tweet from, oh yes, this is on Law News, uh, I think linked via the Drudge Report, Julian Assange uh, saying that this could be a violation of the New York Criminal Code with regard to coercion. Uh, I don't, I find this, I find this, uh, again, not, not a, it, it may be, you could construct a case, I think, but it's uh, unlikely, it seems to me, that you would get, uh, you'd get anyone to bring this case. Uh, but, like, I, I'm not a lawyer, so it's, uh, it is, it is possible. Uh, it is possible. So, we'll see. I'm uh, continuing to take a look at this. Uh, we have... Uh, Al from Alabama on the line. What's up, Al? Hey, how you doing, bud? I'm good, man. Thank you for calling in. I just want to make a comment. If we don't take care of this thing with North Korea, next few months we're all going to be doomed. I think Have that's extreme. I think I mean that's that's a, that's a bit extreme, Al. And I think we've got more than a few months. But I, I do I do recognize it as a very serious problem. What would you like to see the Trump administration do, if I may ask? I'm sorry. You know, we're going to have to hit him with everything we got. Ooh. Have you ever read a book called One Second After? I'm sorry, do you have what? Have you ever read a book called One Second After about an EMP bomb? No, I, I have not, but I've I've heard about and read about EMPs to, to some degree. So what's... You're worried that North Korea is going to have an EMP that they'll use against us to knock out all of our electrical grid and electrical power and make us defenseless, essentially? If they did that, that would kill probably 90% of the population. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but a country who's threatening us with nuclear weapons, even the Russians weren't that stupid. This guy is that crazy. Um, uh, He's definitely... He's definitely crazy. Uh, so what we do about this is something that we need to put some focus on here. Uh, there are no—thank uh, you for calling in, Al. There are no—there uh, are no good options is the thing that you try to avoid saying when you're doing national security analysis because it's such an easy go-to, right? It's so simple to be like, well, there are no good options here. But with North Korea, I don't see what they are. We had Gordon on before. We're talking—there are options. They're just tough. Meaning that they to pull them off is uh, and make it work the way we're trying to is going to be very difficult, and also they don't come without their own costs. There are possibilities that, uh, especially if we really put serious heat on China to take a, a stronger approach to North Korea, to really to, to cut off North Korea. Uh, China could react in all kinds of of ways to that that make our lives more difficult. Uh, you know, you just begin to just begin to run over all the places and all the different scenarios across the world uh, where China could make things 
very well could could extract extract some pain from us uh could make things difficult for us and uh, i you know again the trump administration is focusing on this uh but they're not coming up yet which uh not not coming up yet with anything that i think is a a game changer in terms of the approach other than just strategic patience is not going to work um so that's not enough. Uh, we're running out of time. I wanted to speak. Oh, uh, David from uh, Mississippi. What's going on, David? Hey, Buck. Hey, listen to you every day. Love your show. Thank Love you. your insight. Uh, but I have to say, you and probably everybody else, in my opinion, I think we got it wrong. See, my 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 thinking is this: is this Russia collusion thing? See, Russia didn't. Uh, you know, they didn't get into our election uh, because they wanted to help Trump. See, in my opinion, what they did, they dropped information on Hillary because they were reading her her mail, and then they were they were seeing the polls too. And so, Russia thought, okay, Clinton's going to win it. We need to remind her of all the leverage that we have on her. So that once she becomes president, we can go back to business as usual, running the U.S. over. So, in my opinion, I think Russia got it wrong in that they believed CNN, they believed all the polls. So, you know, what they did as far as dropping information, hacking emails, uh, I think they screwed up just like everybody else. They they bought too much into the polling data. So you're saying they thought Hillary was going to win. And so what they did was just to say to Hillary, nice presidency, it'd be a shame if something bad happened to it because of the information we have. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like the uranium one thing. I mean, that was their way of saying, congratulations. Uh, Oh, and by the way, um, we have proof that you did something treasonous. Huh? Yeah. I I I don't uh, I I can't say that uh, that I I see it your way on this David, but I do appreciate you calling in. Uh, thank you. So yeah, I'm trying to think this one through. So they would well, it's a little bit of a of a diversion from the matter at hand, but I always appreciate calls. So uh, I don't think that would work. By the way, I wanted to get into uh, the latest on the fight over transgenderism, uh, particularly transgenderism when it comes to uh, children. Um, but I'm not going to have time to do that tonight. I promise that we will talk about this. There are some major developments there, uh, including a really worthwhile op-ed that I'll talk to you about tomorrow. Uh, it just makes the case that uh, that transgenderism for children is institutionalized child abuse and that the medical profession is being brought in and is complicit in this largely now. We'll get into that more tomorrow night, but I've got some other stuff for you coming up here. So uh, stay with me, team. Be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. I've spoken to you before on the show about the very difficult-to-hear, difficult-to-think-about topic of what is known as uh, FGM, or female genital mutilation and how there are uh, cases in this country that are getting attention because they're making their way through the courts 
and there are uh, laws that are being passed to stiffen the penalties for this practice. Uh, And there's a debate that's happening, a debate about cultural relativism, a debate about the extent of uh, the left's tolerance for multiculturalism up to and including uh, violent acts of child abuse and and where they are willing to draw the line on this and where they're not. Keep in mind, the left will on one day say that they are completely opposed to FGM, and then you'll have some leftist activists who will say, well, it, but, but there's a lot of different things that involve that FGM could be, and it, by the way, of course, is not an Islamic practice. It's just a a localized tribal practice from different parts of the world. And, and there's a lot of explaining away of the problem. And you say, wait, hold on a second. Or they'll just tell you that it isn't a problem, meaning it barely exists, and that this is scaremongering on the right. Uh, and then you say, well, wait a minute. Why? Which is it? Is it that it's not as terrible as people say it is all the time? Is it that it's not prevalent enough that we have to talk about it? Or which one? What's the defense on the left going to be, as is the case so often with the uh, moral relativists of the progressive side of politics? Uh, the defense depends on the day and depends on whatever's useful at, at any given time. Uh, well, I've told you about the cases in the United States recently and for those of you who were wondering um, if this is a problem in Europe, given what we know of the mass migration into Europe in recent years and the problems uh, that have uh, resulted, including not just terrorism, but also Islamization, uh, proselytizing of jihadists uh, that try to get people to go to Syria. Uh, so there's the terrorist attacks. There's also the Uh, extremism infusion into Europe that has occurred in recent years, Uh, the usage of the refugee flow as a means of infiltrating into Europe. Remember, not just for terrorist attacks, but also just for radicalizing the population of Muslims already in European countries. Uh, But as that is happening, of course, there are other effects that we can see and hear about, uh, we'll read about, but won't, again, won't be taken as an indicator of any broader problems that need to be addressed, won't be taken as something that we all have to uh, focus on and and deal with beyond just perhaps a passing reference in some media outlets. And what, I've see, what I see here, and this just broke over the weekend, I should note, um, not a, a heavy time for uh, breaking news stories, so I, I guess they, were, they figured that they could run this, and there's very little attention. In fact, um, uh, you know, I, I know that the people would say, well, you know, it's it's the UK and obviously they don't celebrate the 4th of July, but a, a substantial portion of the audience is in this country. Um, and the uh, the reality here is that FGM in the UK in the last year, uh, according to a report released uh, over the weekend, there were 5,391 cases of female genital mutilation in England last year alone. Over 5,000 cases of this. That's, that's a problem. That's uh, 5,000 young girls who have been subjected to an incredibly barbaric and perhaps in some cases, as we know, life-ending, always life-threatening, can even be life-ending, can be fatal. Um, procedure because of, well, 
what adults think is necessary for uh, curbing the later sex lives of young women in the Islamic community. That's what this is about. That's why this horrific procedure is done. And it is appalling. And I just, I would just put, point out to you that if this were any other group in the UK, if this were some, if this were a, if this were not in any way associated with the Islamic faith and the surge in Islamic migration into Europe, not just in recent years, but in recent decades, do, do you think that this would just be a, a, a news item that was off to the side, didn't really get uh, the press particularly worked up? This is, uh, this is subjugation of women. This is mutilation and abuse of children. Uh, this is, you know, theocracy imported into countries that don't that don't want it, that that don't agree with it, that that are trying to uh, embrace that, that do embrace rather Western liberal values. And this is just an item like, oh well, you know, it's just a study out of the National Health Service. So what are we what are we really going to do about it? I suppose it is appalling and it just goes to show you that culture matters Uh, we want people from all over the world to come to this country legally we love our immigrants immigrants are great people and uh, we just want good immigrants in this country and they want good immigrants in europe too or they should want good immigrants in europe too meaning that they should have policies in place that push for that Um, but what we see is the blinding of the authorities to the problems that are being imported into some of these countries, uh, UK and, and so at, at a lesser level our own, um, that ideological, uh, ideological alignment with Western civilization and liberal norms uh, is a necessary part of the immigration and assimilation process. And when you don't embrace that enough and you don't spend enough time on it, uh, there are going to be consequences, and we see some of those horrific consequences both in the U.K. and here at home. Uh, I really do thank you, as always, for joining me here on the show. Uh, if you're listening, please do go on iTunes, click on Buck Saxon with America Now, and click subscribe uh, on iTunes. Uh, you can listen on the iHeartRadio app anytime you like as well. Um, until then, team, as always, Shields High.